Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Mike Munger of Duke University, longtime contributor to the Library of Economics and Liberty and frequent guest here at EconTalk. Mike, welcome back. Good to talk to you, Russ. Our topic for today is the idea of subsidies and the economic justification and sometimes the political reality of uh, the subsidy world. What is the idea behind subsidies in the ideal? The kind of classic justification for it was by an economist named A.C. Pigou, who said that one of the main things that the state, meaning the nation, the government, should do is get prices right. And as economists, I, I generally, as an economist, I generally think that that's right. Anything we can do to remove distortions in pricing is probably going to improve the allocation of resources. What he meant, though, was had with something he called externalities, or people later called externalities, that the effect of uh, something that I do, something I consume, something that I produce, is not fully captured in price and government has to make up the difference. So if I am thinking of doing something that would also benefit others, I won't do enough of it because I won't fully capture the benefits. And so a subsidy makes up the difference. So the flip side of this, <clears throat> you and I have spoken about before, would be a negative externality, uh, which would be a example like pollution, where I impose costs on others beside myself. But today we're going to talk about positive externalities. So what would be some examples uh, of that? Well, um, I tried to kind of personalize this and think of some examples in my own life that I have encountered, some things that I like that I think we should have more of. I'm a big St. Louis Cardinals fan, and uh, the city of St. Louis just built a new stadium for the St. Louis Cardinals. I also am a farm owner. I don't know if you knew this, Russ, but I'm, I'm a farmer. Uh, south of Pittsburgh here in North Carolina. And I I should say to the listeners, Russ himself went to UNC at Chapel Hill, so he's familiar with the geography. Just a little bit south of Blue Heaven there is a little town called Pittsburgh. And I I own 35 acres of forest. What do you do there? I go down sometimes. I built a little baseball field. Actually, it's a full-size baseball field. It has uh, 320 down the lines. Um, and we, we practice baseball, but most of the rest of the 35 acres is trees. I grow pine trees, and they grow pretty slowly. I watch them sometimes. They, they, they are growing, um, and in 20, 22 more years, they will be ready to harvest. And the state of North Carolina has decided that somehow I'm not doing enough of that. And others. And other people are apparently not doing enough yeah. of this, and so they pay me to do it. And they pay me in at least three ways. One is my tax bill is essentially non-existent. So I have 35 acres of land that would be pretty valuable if it were to be developed. But since it's a farm, I pay something like $600 a year in taxes. Second way that they subsidize this is that they want to make sure that I fertilize these trees. You may not have realized that if you're a tree farmer, you've got to put fertilizer. I didn't realize it. But the state sent me a letter without any request from me and said, if you want to put fertilizer on your trees, we'll pay for half of it. So I guess you're putting some fertilizer on them. I thought, what the heck? 
Yeah. And so last year, I benefited about $6,000 worth from the state. They also said that they thought, the, the state agricultural extension thought that it would improve the trees if we burned off uh, the undergrowth. Uh, it, it'll use less of the fertilizer and it'll use less of the water, and the, the ash will improve the quality of the soil. And they'll pay three quarters of that. How, and did you do that? I did that too. Well, I, I, I didn't have to do it myself. I, I live about 50 miles away, but I got the state to send out fire trucks. I didn't have to pay anything for this. They wanted to make sure that the fire didn't get out of control. And they, had, they have guys go through with these little fire pots and set portions of the undergrowth on fire. And if anything too much catches, they put it out with the fire trucks. It cost about $12,000, and the state paid three quarters of that for me. I, I probably benefit something close to $20,000 a year from these subsidies, from this desire by the state to make sure that impoverished farmers like me continue to live on the land, except that I live 50 miles away and I'm a Duke professor and I'm not impoverished. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I guess this is one of those wonderful examples where uh, language often leads us astray uh, if we could play back the tape, I think we'd hear you say something like, the state wants impoverished farmers to grow trees and live off the land, etc. I got a letter. It said it. And right on the letterhead, it said, state of North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, but of course, one of our themes here on this show is that uh, there is no we. Um, the state doesn't have desires. So an alternative explanation, I, ha I hate to bring it up, but an alternative explanation would be that Farmers are politically important in the state of North Carolina, and they've managed to get past a subsidy to themselves on purely self-interested grounds. It's more like a payment than a subsidy. Yeah. Because a subsidy sounds like we something we want more of. This is – it's help, and I appreciate it. We are getting more of it, I bet. Yeah. Uh, so that is a – so it's kind of an interesting uh, – it's an application of a theme we've talked about here before, the bootleggers and Baptists. Uh, podcast with Bruce Yandel, where uh, government activity is often a mix of altruistic or desirable ends that most everybody would agree on, mixed in with purely self-interested, um, help me at your expense kind of activity. So and there's a, there's a the, and the, the, the Baptist part of this, the moral part of this, would be we do all sort of think that the hard scrabble farmer pulling himself up by his own bootstraps, working hard on the land by the sweat of his brow, it's part of American culture. We want to preserve it. And so if we all pay a little extra for wood, that's okay. Or maybe we pay a little bit of extra taxes. <coughs> Excuse me. That's fine because there, there are cultural values for this. And the, the bootlegger part is that the farmers really do benefit a great deal from it and vote for people who provide them for it. So nobody votes against, and some people are motivated really to vote for and maybe even make campaign contributions. So there, I think there is a kind of Baptist and bootlegger uh, coalition here that explains this subsidy. Of course, now that some of your fellow North Carolinians are aware that some of those hardscrabble farmers – love that phrase, hardscrabble. It sounds like a um, – advanced kind of board game <clears throat> and it's easily confused with scrapple well, the, yeah. which is a breakfast food if i remember correctly it's a breakfast food sort of. if you've got a really strong stomach yeah but uh, now that you've told people that actually you're not a um uh a picture out of uh was it walker evans took the photographs during the great depression yeah Those, i don't i don't have a, a little 
ramshackle tin hut that yeah, I live in. Your face, I'm sure it has a few lines, but it's yeah. not, not those, those gloriously colorful but tragic faces of the 30s. It's from worrying whether my son's going to wreck my Lincoln. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and... <laughs> Whether your uh, whether your infield is healthy in that yeah, ballpark. Yeah, that's right. If the, the darn pitcher could throw strikes, it's full of lines. You're right. None of them come from worrying about whether my farm is going to go bankrupt. Right. So it, <clears throat> it's kind of a interesting question now that you revealed that you're, you're maybe one of the uh, undeserving non-poor. That the rationale and romance behind that subsidy program is slightly dented. Well, the state offered me the chance to turn it down. After all, they sent me a letter. It's voluntary. I didn't have to. And I thought about it, and I thought, what the heck? And you do pay some of the costs. It's not all free, right? So yeah, that's you have right. to pay I, a I, fraction. Sure. But it's still... Uh, and I had to buy the land. Right. And you're fighting global warming, no yeah. doubt, with those pine I've, trees. I've got, I've got a lot of, of carbon there that's trapped. Molecules and molecules of it, I'm sure. Um, so that's one example. Uh, some of the more... Uh, other examples where where state, local, or federal policy gets involved with subsidies. Uh, well, I, I mentioned the, the the St. Louis Cardinals, the the stadium kind of problem. I think there's the the same combination there between cultural values that we're the sort of city that has major league sports teams. We're not the sort of city that lacks them, and there's some people that make money from it. So you you need it can't be both. It can't just be raw self interest. It has to be some kind of appeal to a higher value. Because you, you usually have to get some other people to go along with your um, hijacking of the fiscal uh, purse and there. The question is, why do we do that so often? Why do we buy those cultural arguments so much? Because they're extremely powerful. Well, I wanna, Let me give you my version of the baseball story, the St. Louis Cardinals Stadium story, and, and get your reaction. Well, the Cardinals really are an important part of culture. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> and as, as you know, and our listeners don't, but as you know, uh, I lived in St. Louis for 14 years. And uh, for better or for worse, two of my sons, for reasons inexplicable to me, have decided to become Cardinal fans. It could, Taste in breeding. Yeah, it could be your influence. It's not, <laughs> I suspect. But uh, their father is a Red Sox fan, and, and these, these two boys persist in rooting for the Cardinals. And when we lived in St. Louis, um, they did. they were a classic case, as was I to some extent, of free riding, which is one aspect of this that, that's worth mentioning, that... Uh, they enjoyed the benefits of the Cardinals without having to contribute. And what were what were those benefits? Every morning in the, during the baseball season, uh, when the paper came in the house, they would read the paper, read the box scores, root for the Cardinals, enjoy the existence of the Cardinals, and contribute nothing uh, unless I took them to a game, which I did from time to time. But suppose suppose I never took them. So they would get all the benefits. The Cardinals would not be able to capture those benefits via ticket prices, paraphernalia, uh, perhaps they could, but let's say they don't. So we would be enjoying benefits from the Cardinals that the Cardinals would not be able to capture. And therefore, goes the argument, it would be moral and just for the city of St. Louis and the surrounding suburbs to pay for the Cardinal Stadium because, after all, many of us are enjoying the Cardinals without having to pay for it. And that goes way beyond even the people who attend the games you can still think about the Cardinals, enjoy the the box score when you don't go, and so on and so on. And then you get the additional effects you're talking about. It makes people feel like they're in a major league city, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that, that's sort of the standard argument for why you might want to subsidize the Cardinals. The problem I have with it that doesn't ever, hardly ever gets addressed is that, well, that's true, but there are a lot of people in the 
city of St. Louis who don't like baseball. And you're going to force them to pay. So well, and they have to deal with traffic jams around the stadium yeah. on, on game day. It's actually a harm to them. And they're also going to take an enormous amount of city, precious city land and devote a big edifice to that enterprise called baseball that's used 81 days a year out of the 365. Uh, so what's the logic of forcing those folks to pay for something they don't enjoy? In fact, some people actually dislike the sport. Well, we're going to pretend that there's a we because we have decision rules for maybe by majority, maybe by the city council. Uh, you've, you've said a whole bunch of things. One is that there are these benefits that may not be compensated. The same thing is true if I'm really thirsty and buy water. If I go into the grocery store and I'm really thirsty, I might pay 10 or $12 for a bottle of water. It only costs twenty. So the, the question is not what benefit do I get, but how much it costs to provide. The fact that I get consumer surplus from it doesn't mean that we somehow have to subsidize this or maybe charge more for it, that the producer should get to capture all the benefits that are produced. So the, the, the Cardinals, sure, they produce a lot of benefits, but the question is how much does it cost to produce this benefit? And that's partly endogenous, meaning that it's partly determined by how much we subsidize. If, if we decide that we, the public, meaning taxpayers, are going to pay for the new stadium, um, and we're going to pay very high ticket prices, it may in the long run have an effect on the value of the contracts that players are able to get, the amount of profits that the company earns. Um, it, it's not a competitive market, after all, for determine, determining how much it costs to, provo- to produce this. And some college teams, uh, Duke, Carolina, when they play basketball, there's people who also read those box scores. Yep. And those people aren't paid anything. They're produced at much lower cost, although some of those same stadiums are also produced by the public. So the the, the opportunity cost, I have a, a friend, uh, Dennis Coates, who had an article in Regulation Magazine about 10 years ago, and he's thinking of updating it. Um, and in it, he analyzes the net economic benefits of stadiums. And he takes seriously the arguments that you just made um, Maybe it benefits a few people, but it has big costs, and the opportunity cost of that land, when you account for the land and the amount of money that's tied up in this facility that's hardly ever used, his conclusion is that stadiums either have no net effect or, in some cases, a pretty large negative net effect if you account for the opportunity cost. Yeah, that that, uh, is a whole interesting industry, the industry of consultants who will give you a very large number. They use multipliers. The key yeah. thing is to use multipliers. For how much benefit the stadium allegedly provides. And strangely enough, the people who want the stadium were able to find consultants to predict how much benefit there will be. That's always, almost always a very large number. Well, and, and they're assuming that, these, that the tax money that goes to build the stadium would otherwise have been burned. It would have, wouldn't have been used for anything by the city, and it wouldn't have been used by taxpayers if they'd been allowed to keep it. Yeah, and that is a very nice ex- application of the importance of opportunity costs, the, uh, a topic I think we've done a podcast on, if, uh-huh. I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it, it's a very uh, key uh, idea for getting the world um, correctly understood. So the, the stadium, the, the consultants say it's wonderful. Dennis Coates, an objective observer, and other economists who've looked at it often find a just as as you said, 
zero effect or maybe a small negative effect even when you especially when you include the opportunity cost the alternative uses of the land or the tax money um so where does that leave us it it seems that there is this cultural passion that many people have for their local sports team it's not universal but but it's there it exists and uh, at the same time there's this political um, nexus between that passion and the self-interest of the architect and the constructor of the stadium and the team itself, which usually is consisting of influential local citizens. Uh, I think that's just the way it's going to be. There are exceptions now and then. A, a city will refuse. But um, as you say, it, it's not It's not just that it's not a competitive situation. It's, it's that it's very hard to have three-quarters of a baseball team um, if you want to be in the game, if you want to be in the in the in the American or National League, you got to have a team, and you can't say as a city, well, we'll have part of a team. So unlike other things, where you can have some restaurants or a lot, or you can have uh, a lot of movie theaters or a few, here you either have a stadium or you pretty much don't. So it gives the ownership a lot of leverage in uh, exploiting the city council, in in my observation. Yeah, and it. Having the stadium creates a set of interests that really would be harmed if it were to leave. Um, what I think is interesting is the larger argument about culture that we also hear, not just applied to cities, but to nations, about reasons that we subsidize things. We talked a little bit uh, earlier about uh, subsidizing farming. In the United States, um, for well, in, in the 1930s, a, a quarter of our population lived on small farms, and there were six million small farms in the United States. We kind of thought of ourselves as being a nat- nation of farmers. We're going to try to preserve this. By the 2000 census, 150,000 large farms all over the United States gave us three-quarters of all our food. Only 2% of the U.S. population resides on farms, but we, we still have these enormous subsidies where we subsidize feed grains and cotton um, one of my favorite subsidies, and I know yours, is the the one on sugar, the the important national defense oh, argument. Crucial. About. I mean, what would we do if we couldn't get American sugar? So we we have we have big quotas on sugar to prevent that nasty foreign sugar from coming in, and then we subsidize domestic production to make <laughs> Just sure. Just in that, case. <laughs> <laughs> so we we the we we subsidize wool and and mohair. We subsidize oil seeds and soybeans and. Uh, in Japan, rice is a matter of national culture to such an extent that uh, the Japanese price for rice is five or six times the world price. Now, they'll say it's because it's better. But if that's true, they wouldn't need a subsidy. If it's a different product and people will pay more for it, then they don't need to worry about it. But they yeah. go beyond that and they say, it's part of Japanese culture. We have to protect this. We have to subsidize it, otherwise it will disappear. My Japanese students uh, tell me that they're always shocked when they come to America to find out that American rice isn't uh, isn't as bad as they've been told, um, <laughs> right? And if, if there are any yep. Japanese listeners out there who can vouch for these uh, comparisons, I'd love to hear it. Uh, please do email us, uh, mail at econtalk.org, and let us know about the relative quality of Japanese and American rice. And I'm actually, I, let, let's suppose that they're right. Let's suppose that they're right, that the difference in quality is every bit as big as they claim. Why do they need a subsidy? Why yeah. is it that it's necessary, then, if the quality difference is so big? And to keep out, yeah, to keep out the foreign... And so supply. the answer is, we want Japanese farmers working in a very 
artisanal way by hand in small rice plots as a kind of human zoo. When we drive by, we can look at that and say, ah, oh, look, there's our heritage from a thousand years ago. Yeah, that is, again, I, I think that is one of the reasons. I, I don't know how important, when you say we want, I think many of us don't want that in Japan, uh, the, our Japanese listeners, and many of us here in America don't particularly uh, cherish the idea that there are dairy farmers in Maine. I, you want me to be a tree farmer. I know you do. Well, right? I long for it, but I, I trust that you'd be one anyway without the <laughs> subsidies because I know you're a very wooden fellow. But ah. uh, what I was really thinking of is, you know, people people who are in the midst of it, unlike yourself, having a somewhat um, ironic and self-aware side. Yeah, Mike, maybe even jaundiced. Yeah, or jaundiced. Uh, when I once did a commentary criticizing dairy subsidies, uh, I got an, an irate email from a Maine dairy farmer saying that you know, her father had had cows in Maine, and her grandfather had had cows in Maine, and and they'd always had cows in Maine. And I wrote her back, and I said, "That's lovely, but why am I paying for it? Yeah. I mean, I don't have any problem with there being cows in Maine and you being a dairy farmer. Why do you feel entitled? And of course, it's in her interest to make me feel as if she is entitled. And there are people who find it uh, that bucolic uh, scene as they drive down the road in Maine, seeing the dapple duff uh, cows." I think that's what they are, the, yeah. the, the cows, and yeah. they like the idea of it, but um, most of us don't, and it's just uh, theft. Sure, and, and, and we pay twice. We pay higher taxes, and then we pay, higher for, we pay more for the milk and cheese and dairy products in the store, and it, it's without any kind of say. This happens in other areas also that I think the, the, the sense of culture, though, you and I Maybe we can say, I, I, I don't care so much. Although, all else equal, I'd, I'd like to drive through a bucolic area than I would drive through Maine and have it look like some part of Cleveland. So I'm, I'm happy to have these places preserved for me. And it doesn't cost me much directly that I have any say over. But there are nations that try to protect their culture in other ways, not just through economics. But uh, Yeah, talk about that. Well, France and Canada both have really strict rules about what proportion of movies can be shown in their movie theaters um, that are made in the United States. So one of the reasons that Canada has a movie industry is that there's this restriction that a certain number of movies shown in any Canadian theater have to be made in Canada, and that some of them have to also be in French, at least in, uh, in, in Quebec. And so there's a, there's a kind of set-aside. And it's a subsidy in the sense that the, the, the people have to, it's a kind of tied good. In order for me to watch an American movie, I also have to watch or at least have available uh, a Canadian movie or a French movie. And so they're, they're trying to preserve, they're, they're worried about globalization, but it's globalization in a different way. It's not that products are going to come in and take, take all of our products. It's that culture is going to come in and change the way that we think about ourselves. Yeah, that's the claim, and it's an interesting claim. I don't, I don't totally dismiss it, and I've, just for the record, I've been fighting off the urge to hum in the background. I, I wanted to, while you were saying that, hum La Vie en Rose, the um, film that the uh, actress uh, Marion Cotillard just won uh, Best Actress from, portraying Edith Piaf, and perhaps that movie came into being partly because of these kind of restrictions on American films, that, that if it were not for these restrictions, uh, the French would 
would foolishly settle into watching Jerry Lewis as they supposedly uh, like to do and watching, um, I don't know, Terminator 17 or whatever else the French are worried about. So, But here's the question. It's a nice argument, right? But at the heart of it has to be the idea that that French people who want to watch American films because just like the Rice example, if it if French people wanted French films, you wouldn't need these restrictions. So obviously there's a bunch of people in France who want to watch French fil- American films and there's a bunch of people in Canada that would rather watch American films rather than Canadian films. So because of these restrictions, they're being given a product they don't really like. And the claim has to be that, well, that's true. We're depriving them of what they want, but they're really going to be happier because were we to allow them to freely choose the movies that they would watch uh, voluntarily and without coercion, they would lose the French film industry, they would lose the Canadian film industry, and they would regret it down the road. They don't, they don't realize it, that, that this is going to be one of the costs. It would be an externality. It would have the effect of eliminating mm-hmm. something that they care about. And so we have to subsidize. Well, it's not just an external because the, the let me give you the domestic version of this, which I find um, intriguing and somewhat strange. Um, you have a choice, say, between shopping at Home Depot or Lowe's and the local hardware store. And Home Depot has a lot bigger selection than the local hardware store. So you go to Home Depot. And not only is the selection larger, but the prices are lower, and so you shop there. And without thinking about it, you are slowly degrading and destroying, so goes the claim, Main Street. In your little hometown, your little quaint, um, nostalgic uh, Main Street shopping area. Which I, which I like. When I drive by it, because I do drive by it on my way to the Home Depot, I look and I think, isn't that quaint? And it's pretty. It's picturesque. So the real question, though, is... Is it a question of that you don't realize the full – is it that by shopping at Home Depot, you ignore rationally your contribution toward a poorer world of less quaintness? Or the other possibility, of course, is that the local hardware store just wants to stay in business against a competitor it cannot compete against. And I think the real question – there's two questions there. One is do people really regret – what's happened to their local towns. I think most of them don't regret it. I think they like the Home Depot and they like the Walmart and they like all the stuff that they get because they can have less expensive stuff. And other things come along in the town square that are different, but not town square doesn't disappear. It just doesn't have a hardware store anymore. Is that really um, such a bad thing? Well, it is true that the hardware store either gets boarded up or it's got tape on the windows. It doesn't look as good. Maybe another kind of store moves in, but they may not be able to make much money because real estate downtown is pretty expensive. Paradoxically, it's empty because it's expensive. We may not get price adjustment very quickly. What a lot of cities end up doing, and Greensboro here in North Carolina has just done this, is they offer subsidies. <laughs> they, they subsidize um, these otherwise empty storefronts that used to have maybe hardware stores or other other kinds of stores in them that couldn't compete, and they couldn't compete on grounds that we actually care about. If you're able to offer more products, higher quality variety of products, and lower prices, that means you get to win. In a market society, consumers make those sorts of choices. We have to allow that Home Depot to win over the mom and pop store. If people want to go to the mom and pop store, it can stay open. But otherwise, 
they're going to lose on grounds that we generally credit. So what has happened in downtown Greensboro is they've offered nearly tax-free, and in some cases with some explicit subsidies, a bunch of um, uh, licenses and pretty quickly moved on. They're, They're art galleries, so all along Elm Street. There's a lot of art galleries, and people talk about the benefits of these, and it's as if it's a kind of smaller case of the sports stadiums that we talked about earlier. They assume that these all have zero opportunity cost, and that no none of the taxes that are being given up by these tax subsidies could have been used for anything else. They talk about the multiplier effects of having art in the windows, and it's true. When I drive by, it does appear to be a much more vibrant downtown. So how would you decide? What Suppose that at the margin, a little bit, I kind of like having art museums, and the art museums, they're, they're galleries, where private works are put up at very low cost, people can walk through, they walk along, there's coffee shops, it, it's, it, it, Greensboro's downtown, it is very charming as a result, whereas it was a very difficult, dangerous place 10 years ago. So there's been this resurgence. So how is an economist to evaluate that? This is taken everywhere in North Carolina as being a huge success story, and it just makes me grumpy. Yeah, it might be a success. It, it reminds me, when I used to be in the business school at Washington University, uh, sometimes city planners and other folk would come to me with ideas that they wanted my MBA students to work on. And, and they, were, they were all excited, and they had oh, the light so of the future in their eyes. And they said, one time they came to me and they said, we're thinking of starting a farmer's market in this sort of horrible neighborhood. And I said, why? And they said, well, because farmer's markets are nice. <laughs> yeah, we, we all, everybody likes farmer's yeah, markets. Yeah, there's a certain, again, nostalgic cultural appeal, the local f- produce, et cetera, the displays of the fruit. The vegetables, the colors. They're, they're all local. They, they yeah. didn't waste all that carbon being trucked efficiently from a faraway place that raises them at one quarter of the cost. I'm going to let that just drift by <laughs> as a subject for another podcast. Uh, so, you know, this farmer's market idea, is, and, and it, that's a small-scale version. Here's a, here's a, here's a more uh, dangerous version. Uh, also in St. Louis, people would say, well, we need a biotech industry here. Why is that? Well, Seattle's doing very well, and they have a biotech industry. I said, yeah, and we have something like Seattle because we've got, you know, Washington University, which is a fine university, just like Seattle is University of Washington. And St. Louis had Monsanto, and and Washington, Seattle had – Seattle, Washington had Microsoft. Seattle has the Pacific. You have the Mississippi. Exactly. That's where the, that's where the, that's where the analogy kind of broke down. That, that mimicking a place where people of high income and education are desperate to live versus one where it's a nice place to raise a family, St. Louis, but it doesn't have the cachet or nope. the mountains of, of, of the Northwest, it is just sort of a fantasy that you're invoking because you figure, well, that succeeded there. Let's do it again here. And I think that's what's probably happening to some extent in, in Greensboro. Um, you know, certain towns thrive with an art colony, so let's create an art colony. Mm-hmm. And it might create a couple blocks that look nice. You don't see the the losses, as you point out, that are elsewhere. But, you know, it might have turned – maybe they picked well. Uh, it, it's possible for a central planner or a top-down solution to arrive at a good outcome. It's just that it's unlikely. One, they don't have the information usually, almost always. And uh, two, they don't have the incentive. The incentive is to favor things that politically powerful people want and find charming rather than uh, any larger groups. So it's yeah, hard to know. 
here in North Carolina, there, there, there have been two attempts that I can think of. One was creating Research Triangle Park in the 50s, which a lot of places look to as being this beacon of what central planning can do. Because at three universities well. and around the three universities, this biotech and biomechanical engineering and uh, pharmaceuticals industry grew up. IBM has a huge office here. For a while, they made almost all of their laptop computers here. Um, it, it, a very large number of people are employed here. So they said, let's replicate this success. What we'll do is we'll build something that's kind of like this. and we'll, we'll, we, we need a transportation hub in eastern North Carolina, which... Well, it's true, doesn't have any of those educational facilities, it doesn't have any kind of infrastructure, it doesn't have an educated population, and it doesn't have any cities where anybody wants to live. But we'll build this huge airport. And I was incredulous at the time, and a newspaper reporter from eastern North Carolina called me up and said, uh, you know, what, what sort of success can we expect? And I said, this is going to be a disaster. It has none of the other things. It's just the logical fallacy kind of post hoc ergo propter hoc. That is, A follows B, therefore A caused B. It's true that some people around the Research Triangle Park created some subsidies. They subsidized some business. But in fact, there were low taxes, an educated population, the usual sorts of things that produce growth. Well, in eastern North Carolina, they built this unbelievably huge and now empty airport called Global Transpark. It was important to call it global. And rather than really big piece of empty concrete, they called it the Transpark. I, I don't know what that means, but it, the, the Global Transpark... It sounds like something like maybe from a Robert Ludlum novel. It has a certain um, exciting big feel to it. Well, sure. I mean, com compared to Russ Roberts Regional Airport, the Triple R, I agree. This is better than that. But it still didn't work, and there's nobody there. Yeah, and it you can't. It's very difficult to subsidize growth that way by building a facility and hoping that they will come. So I think the bottom line is, uh, well, sometimes these subsidy programs, these directed growth things, can have a good effect, but often they do not. And I mean, it, it's hard to predict. The, the 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 fact that people think all we have to do is subsidize it is not the answer. Yeah, and it, and it does lead to the fallacy of pointing at the success and ignoring the, the foregone things that have been lost because of pointing you know, resources at a particular place. I love it when people say it's another fallacy of urban development. Which part of the city should we gentrify next? Yeah. Uh, and the answer is, well, you know, maybe none because it's true you can always make a blighted neighborhood look nice by pouring a lot of money into it. Uh, Often you can, but you want to make sure that another neighborhood that didn't get the money as a result doesn't slip and, and do badly. But of course, once you improve one neighborhood, you point to that and wave it around and say, didn't we do a great job? And you don't notice or point to the stuff that didn't do well because the resources were taken away from that. Urban planning is a really interesting example of the selective use of subsidies, I think, because the, in, in this area, in the area around Washington, the, the question usually is, where are we going to build roads next? So I, I, I have a lot of questions about subsidizing mass transit. The, the Triangle area where I live here in North Carolina is thinking of trying to build light rail, and uh. they decided that they were going to have trouble building a light rail system because, for some reason, the federal government wouldn't pay for it. Yeah. The federal government would pony up $15 million, but we need, we need and I, the, the word need is underlined, we need $35 million. And for some reason... 
those tight-fisted people in Washington won't let us have the money that we need. It's because they're short-sighted. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, well, the, the, I don't think we need to subsidize mass transit. I'm willing to say, why don't we just stop subsidizing private transit? Why don't we stop building so many roads for free? The, the problem with building roads is that what we're really subsidizing is location decisions. So right now I'm sitting on a four-lane road, and I'm looking at the headlights ahead of me, the taillights ahead of me. I'm not going the wrong way. I'm looking at the taillights ahead of me, and they're bright red because his brakes are on and the next guy's brakes are on and so on. And I'm thinking, well, if they would just build a bigger road, we wouldn't have this problem. So they doubled the road. Now it's eight lanes going in each direction. And after five years or so, people make their location decisions, which have been subsidized by the fact that this huge road, three or four million dollars a mile, has been built for free for me. And within five or six years, now there's eight lanes of traffic that's completely gridlocked. I haven't gained anything. What we've done is we've subsidized bad location choices. So I don't think we, we need to subsidize mass transit, but we might ask ourselves how much should we subsidize location decisions that developers and uh, some city councilmen expect to profit from. Yeah, my parents live in Huntsville, Alabama. I'd love to know if we have any listeners there in Huntsville. But there is a stretch of road. Huntsville is famous for, among a few things, the um, the Space Museum and the space camp that is there. And the highway opposite that, that facility, it's about – it's going to sound like a lie, but it's about 12 lanes wide. <laughs> you uh, could say any number and I would believe no, it. No, it might be 16. I mean it's an unbelievable you thing. You can't have enough. You can't because you're driving yeah. along in and Huntsville. It's for free. Well, you're driving along, going to Huntsville from, say, Nashville or Memphis or wherever, and you're on a four-lane road, and all of a sudden, it's like an eight-lane road. It's, you're feeling good because you've got plenty of room, and then all of a sudden, it widens to this absurd feeling that you're driving in a parking lot. It's a, not not the traditional parking lot you're driving in where it's full of cars, but yeah, a big one. empty parking lot, and it's about 12 lanes across for a few miles, and it's clear to me that that is a gift to the people of Alabama from a very prominent uh, Alabama senator. I don't know which one. Could have been Mr. Heflin or someone else. But clearly someone of, in power at the federal level subsidized an enormous amount of, of, of concrete and, and road surface for a good friend, someone who was building that road. And I'm sure explained the virtues of having lots of lanes near the, the Space Museum. But well, I have to handle all the traffic, of all the people course, are going to be getting off. But I have never been on it where it was anything remotely close to congested. Uh, it is an extraordinary bit of uh, subsidy there. So we, 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 we it, the, the fact is that subsidy did benefit somebody. Well, so I think people, mainly the person who built the road. Well, the, the, the road builder, the construction crew, sure, but it's nice to drive on that. It is. I enjoy it. It's quite pleasant. And since I paid for it partially, I'm sure I really get a lot of pleasure from it. Uh, let's turn to a uh, classic case of subsidy that uh, I know you've been looking into lately, which is going back to agriculture, a different uh, application, uh, the role of bees. I grew up on an orange farm. Uh, so I actually do have farming in my blood, and I, I still have a hard time, I have to admit, drinking fresh-squeezed orange juice. This is a strange pathology. Um, my job, pretty much every morning, even if I had to go to school at 7, I had to get up at 5.30 and go up and take a bucket, pick oranges, and juice the oranges for the family's use that day. Ouch. And 
I hate fresh squeezed orange juice as a result. But you're a man, Mike. That's the beauty of it. You're, the cruelty of your family. I've never gotten over it. Into a fine human being. Oh, I should I should have counseling subsidized for me. <laughs> so I I we also uh, we we picked our own oranges. We only had about 22 acres, but we picked our own oranges. We'd drive the pickup through and would pick them, put them in the uh, the uh, truck. And it was Florida in the summertime, so it was really quite hot. Um, and, and it was hard work. Now, one of the things that you need for oranges, orange trees in the spring are completely covered with uh, blossoms, and they smell nice. Um, but nothing will happen unless the oranges are pollinated. Now, the, the orange pollen drifts a little bit, but it's pretty heavy. And it's unlikely that the male and female flowers are going to pollinate each other without some assistance. And so we secured the service of uh, beekeepers. And the, the question is, and th- this is an interesting market, um, and the, 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 how much, there's a kind of subsidy um, that you might want to give because beekeepers, when they, they we had a bunch of hives in our yard, uh, that I pretty quickly learned to stay away from because the bees also had a defense mechanism. Um, you look at all the hives in the yard, bees flying in and out. They're busily going and getting the uh, pollen. They bring it back. They, they bring back nectar. They make honey. And the bees have done two things. First is, by going from flower to flower, they have pollinated the flowers so that they will produce fruit couldn't have oranges without them. You'd have a few because just air pollination works, but it basically relies on there being bees or some other kind of insect to pollinate it. And then there's one valuable commodity that's produced. And then another valuable commodity that's produced is orange blossom honey, which is fantastic. And the question is, how would pricing in this market work? And the way that it worked... Well, let's start with the textbook version. Well, the, the way that I noticed that it worked was that it fluctuated. And sometimes, if honey was pretty scarce, um, we would have to pay the beekeeper to come in. Forgive me, if honey was scarce and he could make a lot of money from it, then the beekeeper would pay us, because being able to take the nectar was so valuable. Uh And he could make a lot of money from it. And sometimes, if honey was pretty cheap, we would have to pay him, because he couldn't make enough money by selling the honey. And we couldn't do without. So there's, a, there's an interesting reciprocal relationship. Right. Now, uh, some time ago, a famous economist named Mead um, claimed that he had discovered the canonical example of a positive externality, and that was beekeeping. And the, Claiming that there wouldn't be enough. There wouldn't, wouldn't be nearly enough bees. Because of the positive externality of pollination for nearby orchards, right? Th- th- there was no way of, of capturing that. So... You know, I could make a little bit of money from selling honey, but I won't make enough. And as a result, I'll I'm I'm stuck. So the the government should subsidize this. And I won't I won't have enough bees. I mean, I might I might have when taking when deciding how big my uh, apiary is, my flock. I don't know what the word is. What is the word? Uh, well, a, a swarm. I a guess a swarm. Yeah, trying to decide how large my swarm is. I'll only take into account the honey that will be made that I can sell. I'll ignore mm-hmm. the benefits accruing to the farmer. But, of course, Mead ignored something. Well, there's a really fundamental question here. And I, at, the back, at the beginning, we said that, that A.C. Pigou 
um, in the 1920s was the one who'd come up with this concept of externality. And Mead published this article in um, Economic Journal in 1952, and it's called External Economies and Diseconomies in a Competitive Situation. And so the, the question is, in just a market, without having any kind of government intervention, will there be enough bees? And he said no, and so we, we, had to, we had to get the government to offer a subsidy. And it, it's like a number of other things, like lighthouses or other kinds of what look like private activities that we won't have enough of unless the government subsidizes them. Baseball stadiums. Yeah. <laughs> and then what was interesting was there was a kind of counter-revolution of economic science where people said, yeah, but that can't be right because this is pretty small scale. Why don't we see some sort of private contracts or negotiations? And one of we've talked about him several times, one of our favorite economists, Stephen N.S. Chung, wrote an article called The The Fable of the Bees, which published in 1973. And Fable of the Bees, of course, is after Mandeville's uh, famous old uh, book about what constitutes moral behavior. And Chung analyzed the apple growing industry in the state of Washington and found that there were these complex, in some cases long-term, in some cases short-term relationships between beekeepers and apple growers, and actually found some fascinating private, really just voluntary um, kind of customs. And I, 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 time prevents me from going into too much, but let me just tell you about one. Um, one was called the custom of the orchard. And the custom of the orchard was that if I keep a lot of bees, then it almost certainly means that some of your apples will be pollinated as a result. So if I contract with a beekeeper, if I pay the beekeeper to come in, and the apple blossoms don't actually produce much nectar, so the the honey that comes from apple blossoms is negligible. It was one of the interesting things about this. It wasn't like my experience with orange blossoms, where you could pay the guy in honey. Apple blossoms don't produce enough nectar to make honey, but you have to have the pollination services. And the bees will do it because they, they collect the pollen. They, they can use that as another kind of food. So they would collect nectar from flowers, but they would also collect pollen from the apple trees. And as a result, uh, the pollination services take place and you can grow apples. But the, the custom of the orchard was we should all have approximately the same number of hives. If I have 10 hives, that means you can get away with having none. Because suppose that the let's just make this up. Who are you? Are you the apple guy or the bee guy? You say if I have apple guys, you're an apple guy and I'm an apple okay. guy. Okay. And there's a there's a bee guy that I can contract with, but let's just make him passive. Okay. And so there's there's let's suppose that the provision of apiary services of bee services is competitive. So I decide that I want to make sure that I have enough bees for my orchard, and I could probably get away with three or four, but I'm going to contract with having ten hives. For my orchard. And you say, wait, he's having 10 hives. I'd like to have three or four, but him having 10 is like me having two or three. The bees are going to come over to my orchard also. Hmm. And I won't have any. I can free ride. Well, I noticed that, and I cut back from 10 to three. You stay at zero. I cut back to two, and we end up not having enough. And so it looks like meat is going to be correct. But an institution sprung up called the custom of the orchard. Custom of the orchard was we all agreed implicitly we would have the same number of hives. 
We the different apple growers. We the different apple growers. And and violation of this would actually make you subject to some pretty severe sanctions. It was shunning. It would be that your family wouldn't be included in any of the apple reindeer games in the fall. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what happens then? That's the thought of it. Is, well, so these is these are kind of rural communities that we can no, laugh. It was really no, important. important. I'm, I'm laughing. All it was really important that, that you not be shunned. The custom of the orchard was, was, was very clear. If, if I, I say I'm thinking of having four, I would wait and look at you expectantly. And sure. you would say, I'm thinking of having four, too. Or you might say, you know, I'm not sure that's enough. I'm thinking of having five. And you'll say, okay, I'll have five also. So the, the interesting thing that, that, that Chung found out was two. And the first that we've just talked about, apple growers themselves solved this problem by coming up with a way of making sure that you more or less linear, linearly, according to space, and I was assuming you and I have the same number of acres. Sure. But in fact, we're saying the, the, the number of hives per acre. If you said five, but I have twice as much property, I would get ten. Sure. But, and then the second thing was that we would work out the, uh, the, the competitive price for apple growing. And Chung went through pretty carefully, looking at the way that prices worked, and found that the price of um, having apple having uh, bees on my apple orchard property was almost exactly what you would expect the competitive price to be. It was the cost of production, and they got enough. So there, there was no problem with price. It didn't need to be subsidized, and there was no problem with free riding because we solved the problem ourselves. The, the, it's, it's a very local kind of externality with small numbers. And this, of course, is an application of... Uh the work of Ronald Coase, mm-hmm. Chung was was applying Coase, where Coase, I, I just have to mention this because it's a pet peeve of mine, um, uh, Coase's work, which changed the way people looked at externalities, the Pagovian, the adjective for, you've been talking about Pagu, mm-hmm. so people will talk about a Pagovian tax. Pagovian and elbow are two of my favorite words. Elbow? Pagovian elbow. If I'm in the dentist chair, I just say them to myself. Okay, it's a sort of what? It flows trippingly from the tongue. I, I just was—I was congratulating you on saying Pagovian. All I right. have no other point than that. All right. Uh, I just thought I was missing something there. Uh, <laughs> something to do with tennis. So, so the the Pagovian tax or the Pagovian subsidy is was invoked in in the twenties and still is invoked today as something quote we need to do to correct these price distortions we started talking about. So Mead looked at the Pagovian uh, subsidy we needed to offer beekeepers to make sure that they provided the right number of bees and in fact he thought he had the perfect example of of what Pigou would have talked about if if he had realized it. When in fact it was a better example of what Coase talked about. And what Coase talked about was when transaction costs are small, we can often ignore these externalities because the parties involved have a very strong incentive to find a way to make the wise decision. And what's beautiful about the example is in your Florida case is that the payments what what I love about Coase is it's in, in one of the things I love about his article, the 1960 article uh, on social cost, is that he understood that externalities are reciprocal so that if uh, there's not just a benefit to the orange grower from the beekeeper, but the beekeeper – in this case, the orange grower also benefits the beekeeper and the market, that is, which is an ugly word, what of course we mean is the – 
voluntary emergent actions of the people involved in trying to find their way to, through the world, uh, they would make the payments flow in one direction or the other in ways that made economic sense, even though no one was designing that as some sort of ideal. It, it emerged from their uh, decisions and interactions with each other. And it would happen regardless of how the property rights were assigned because there was a particular way there was a particular amount of beekeeping services that benefit the, the orange farmer and the particular amount of access to orange blossoms that benefit the beekeeper. So the question of who's going to profit most, yes, that's interesting, and the property rights assignment would matter, but it doesn't matter at all to the decisions that the economic participants make, and that's kind of the heart of the Coase theorem. And I, seeing it at work so clearly was, was something I, I didn't understand until later, but it seemed to me like a beautifully articulated system. We all just took for granted that we, we'll, we'll pay it in honey. Here you go. This is valuable. And the, the guy would, we didn't have to call him. He showed up. It was in his interest, and it benefited us also. And of course, conceivably, if those transactions costs were too high, if there weren't an organized market in beekeeping, or if people had trouble agreeing on the who was really benefiting, and there was a big debate, you could always become a an a orange grower who kept bees without the specialization that the beekeeper provides, right? If a lot of large scale orange growers did exactly that, and they would just internalize it, but it, it's it, it's extra trouble, and there's specialized skills. And uh, even large orange growers didn't make their own shoes, even though they probably could have kept a shoekeeper, <laughs> a shoemaker right there on, on site. No doubt. So, and I need shoes to walk around. I can't walk around my orange grove without shoes. So in some ways, that it's just as important. But the, a, a market sprang up without anybody directing and saying, you know, we don't have enough bees. Let's have a federal department of bees to make sure that these orange growers get their crops pollinated. Some people said, you know, I can make money. And I like bees. This is something I've always been interested in. I'm going to learn about this. I'm going to do it better and more cheaply than anybody else. And what's beautiful about the Chung paper or the Coast paper on the lighthouse that you alluded to indirectly a few minutes ago is that it's a – embarrassing thing about our profession that people can sit in their armchairs in their ivory towers and say how the world is without actually looking to see if it's a problem. Well, what the problem, the problem is that economists are really good at predicting the past. And so it's absolutely true that if nobody did anything, there wouldn't be enough lighthouses. <laughs> wouldn't it be amazing if nobody did anything? Yeah. So someone did. They, they found a way of solving this problem. And they, they found a way of solving the problem with the bees. So it's not so much that there's no such thing as externalities as that what, what Coase said is right. And people criticize Coase for having a tautology, but like most tautologies, it's true. If there's this sort of deadweight loss, if there's this problem with externalities, it means somebody can make money by solving it. And so smart people think about it. And the, the thing about the beekeepers was you deal with it. Suppose we don't solve it one year. Well, we, we have to deal with it year after year, so there's this repeat business problem, and we have small numbers. It would be remarkable if they didn't solve it, and of course they did. So uh, my pet peeve that I mentioned earlier is that a lot of people think that's the end of the Coase theorem, that, that when there are externalities, um, especially when the transactions costs are low, that you don't have to worry because people will find a way to work things out. And I think Coase was right about that, and his insight reminds people people like Stephen Chung to go look for the institutional arrangements that people have been able to figure out. But for me, the Coase theorem is really the second part of that, which often gets forgotten. And if you read the actually read the paper, 
uh, you'll see that Coase actually thought this was kind of important, like the main thing, which was in situations where transactions costs are high, you should pay a lot of attention to how you uh, assign property rights and liability and, and benefits because if transactions costs are high, it's unlikely that people will be able to come to an easy solution given that they often have disparate advantages and benefits or costs of coming to a solution. So I just thought maybe we'd close talking about uh, carbon tax, which we've talked about briefly here in the past with uh, Greg Mankiw. A lot of people out there are arguing that because um, people, when they decide whether to get in their cars, they don't fully internalize the effects of those uh, decisions. That is, they impose costs on others. Often the most frequent example we hear about recently is global warming, but pollution would be a general example. So we therefore should have a carbon tax. And although it might be true that a tax on carbon or gasoline, a higher tax than we already have, we already have a substantial tax on gasoline, but while it might might be true that a higher tax on gasoline or uh, carbon generally could produce a benefit, what Coast reminds us is that we ought to remember that there are alternatives, not it's not the case that all the people in the world can sit together in a big room and cheaply figure out the best way to allocate the costs of reducing the total amount of carbon put out in the world. If we decided that was a problem, he's right. That would be too expensive. We would never agree on that. And we're struggling to agree on it even in a most general way right now. But I think the real insight of Coase in that situation is to make the point that you have to look at the alternative ways that people will respond to that situation. And the question becomes not well, is it possible that a carbon tax could make things better? The question is, is there a cheaper way to deal with global warming than preventing it? I don't know the answer to that, but we ought to think about it before we impose an expensive tax. Yep, and the the, the real, the key insight that people do miss it about the Coase theorem is not, and therefore externalities don't exist, a just-so story about why a monkey has a tail. fact is that oftentimes transactions cost are really high, the Coase theorem, the, the main thing that I think Coase gives to us is saying we might be able to solve these problems, and if we can't, somebody might be able to solve these problems if we can think of a way of reducing transactions cost. They might be able to figure out an inexpensive way on their own at the local level to solve the problem. And so there's parts of the EPA and other kinds of regulatory bodies that have started to take that a little bit seriously with um, creating... Uh, credits. So suppose instead of saying, I think everybody has to reduce the amount of carbon they produce by 10, 10%, however much carbon you produce, you've got to reduce it by 10%. I might say, I'm going to reduce the amount of carbon by 10% in this entire area and then create tradable credits. Now, it, I, it happens that it's really expensive for me to reduce the amount of carbon that I produce. But it's cheap you gotta, for you. You've you got to get out to that pine tree farm. Yeah. <laughs> I well, sir, I'm, I'm, maybe I, I don't, I don't, maybe it's really cheap. Yeah, maybe it's really cheap for me to sequester a lot of carbon, but I'm not doing it enough. We create this market where people have an incentive. We reduce the transactions cost of negotiating about it and let people trade on their own. We don't have to, we don't have to dictate what happens. We can just create some institutions that reduce transactions cost, and then some of the externality will be ameliorated. So the, the, the insight of, that Coase has about transactions cost is the one that's really fundamental. The one about externalities, I think you're right, is overplayed. It, it's the transactions cost that, that what it really is the heart of interest about that Coase paper. And I think if you take it seriously, again, it forces you to think about 
alternative ways uh, to get there from here rather than just one particular way. Um, Particularly not the Pigovian way, which is just impose taxes. Right, which which sometimes might be the cheapest way or the mm-hmm. best way is to prevent something from happening. But often, if that's very expensive, we might be better off letting it happen and finding out cheaper ways to cope with the so-called costs that might result if we do nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, that's a little trickier. Uh, well, we're almost out of time. You want to say anything else about subsidies? Um, anything else that um, – I mean, I, I always like the example of, of pushing through a revolving door because I don't think people push fast enough um, <laughs> because they can free ride on the pushing by the person on the other side of the revolving door. And so what people do is they they put their hands up to the door like they're pretending they're pushing. And we talked about this in another podcast. I thought I was the only one who did that, Russ. No, it's it, a bunch of economists do it. You, you know how, how economists are. Yeah. And we need a government program to subsidize people pushing through revolving doors. We'd have to meter it. It'd be challenging. Uh, try to figure out calories burned as you walk through the door. I had not thought. In fact, <laughs> if you wanted to make some extra money, you could just go around and around. Yes. It would, it would be like one of those big wind farms. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it is an interesting example of reminding, even though it's facetious, it reminds us of one of the hidden costs of subsidies, which is monitoring the activity itself. Um, it might completely swamp whatever small benefit might exist. Yeah, in that case, I, I suspect it would. The other one I like is uh, attractive people don't go out often enough. Uh, they stay inside, not not thinking of the fact that... I when try they... to get out all I can. Well, yeah, well, it makes sense. And that's a negative externality. So <laughs> if, if I could, if I would stay in more... Well, no, you that, should be taxed. I am, yeah. willing to, I am willing to accept payments from the listeners to stay in my office more. Yeah, no, you should either be taxed uh, for going out or subsidized to stay in, clearly. Well, Coast would say it, it shouldn't matter. And since <laughs> I have the property right, I am threatening to go out again right now unless I receive money. Uh, my guest today has been Mike Munger of Duke University. Uh, Mike, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. See you next time. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.